is the WTF Bach Podcast. The podcast about Johann Sebastian Bach, brought to you by his prodigal son, WTF Bach. Join WTF Bach as he guides your mind through a contrapuntal journey. Why don't you let WTF Bach guide you? And now, here's WTF Bach. Hey, it's WTF Bach here, Evan Shinners. My apologies for not releasing any episodes recently. I am traveling this winter for some performances and one recording. I may talk about the pieces that I'm going to record on a near episode, but in general, forgive me this holiday season if you don't get your usual dose of WTF. Follow me on Instagram so you can see where and when I am playing in case I'm coming to a theater near you. As this is the podcast for all things J.S. Bach, we might as well immerse ourselves into the world further of all things that were around Bach. We should try and position ourselves with the same problems of music that he had to deal with. Yes, problems. That Bach had to solve one of these problems is that of temperament or tuning. I will use these terms interchangeably, temperament, tuning. I think even in a recent episode, I called this the elephant in our Bach room. So, Time to drag out the ill-tempered elephant and see what he's all about. Temperament is a really, it's a truly fascinating world. A world of music that, sadly, most people don't have access to. Most people never open even the door. As with most aspects of this podcast, I could devote the rest of the episodes just to the discussion of tunings and temperaments and which tunings work well for Bach's music, even which keys are better suited to certain tunings, which pieces work better in certain tunings. Now, I'm a pianist, and like most pianists, I never concerned myself with temperament, what it was. And I'm not just talking about tuning, knowing if something is in or out of tune. Tuning isn't a switch where click, something's in tune, and then click, now it's out of tune. It's rather a giant spectrum, a world, as I said, of different solutions to temperament. The modern piano is tuned one way in one temperament, but it wasn't until I owned a clavichord and started tuning for myself that I realized the entire world of beauty that most of us neglect. And it's indeed a deep, mysterious well of sound. So let's dive in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. I am no expert in the history of this stuff, but apparently we all sort of misattribute the discoveries of musical intervals to the Greeks. We name a very basic part of our music, in fact, Pythagorean. Pythagoras the Greek was in the 6th century BC, but in fact, these discoveries of musical intervals date back to the first civilizations in ancient Mesopotamia. And that's fitting, because as soon as there were civilizations, I can imagine people making music there, discovering the possibilities and trying to solve the problems of music. But what problems, what discoveries? Let's go back to 10,000 BC, which is possibly when this sort of thing was occupying the minds of civilized people. Someone had a string. Some ancient human had a string or an animal gut or something that vibrated when plucked or picked or hit, whatever. It made a pitch. Okay, good. But when the string was cut in half and plucked or hit or picked again, it made a pitch that was one octave higher. Of course, they didn't call it an octave, but they sat there with this string and found that another string half its length made pretty good harmony with the first string, and that two of the smaller strings could fit into the first, well, this is very interesting indeed. And that's what fascinates me about music on a very primal level, that music wasn't invented. It was discovered in a primitive way by humans sitting, fidgeting, and finding something like this. Like mathematics, it's not invented, it's discovered. Maybe you too, if you've ever been sitting there fiddling with a guitar, you've found that if you hold your fingers lightly over the guitar string, 
and pluck, certain places on the string will be more resonant than others. And that's not the maker of the string inventing such a thing. No, those resonant places on a string or a drumhead or a bell or even a wine glass, those are built into nature. I should actually say built by nature. They are nature. Now, please take with a grain of salt that I'm going to jump maybe 10,000 or more years of human history from the Mesopotamians to Bach in a few minutes. But what is happening when you cut that string in half? We can now describe it in some scientific terminology. When you cut a string in half, the smaller string has double the frequency. The higher the note, the higher the frequency. A string with half the length of another has double the frequency. Frequency is measured in hertz, abbreviated HZ. And one hertz, one hz, is one event, one vibration, we could say, per second. Or if you want to count per minute, one hertz is 60 beatings, 60 events per minute. One hertz is actually too low for humans to hear. We are only able to start hearing frequencies around 20 hertz. And we're going to do, just like the ancient Greeks or just like the Mesopotamians, we're going to do some calculations by multiplying these hertz together. So for our ease of calculations, let's start our experiment with a tone of 100 hertz. Check your speakers throughout this episode or your earphones or whatever. I don't want any of this to hurt your ears or break your speakers. I will warn you if something is going to get high or loud, but I think it's under control here. 100 hertz. Here we are. This is the tone of 100 hertz. Now, if we double this, we hear its octave at 200 hertz. And if we double this again, we hear an octave at 400 hertz. And if we go to yet 800 hertz, we have yet another octave. And I won't go to 1600, that's going to be loud. But it's the powers of 2. 1, 200, 400, 800, 1600, 3200. These give us octaves. And we could say that these notes are at a 2 to 1 ratio with each other. The higher note beats 2 times per every 1 beat of the lower note. Now, what if I continued as an early curious human may have, increasing our ratios to three, three to one. Well, it seems like something indeed has happened. It sounds like we get a new note, but they're very far apart. So what if I took the lower note of 100 Hertz, doubled it, raised it up the octave and made our three to one ratio three to two. And now we hear this the higher note beating three times to every two beats of the lower note. We have 300 hertz here and 200 hertz simultaneously. Now this sound is known as the perfect fifth. Of course, these names only apply in our language as we called them such well after they were first heard by us. So it's not so important that you know the names of what this interval is so much as you recognize this sound. And you're probably thinking, well, that sounds familiar. But indeed, we are part of this world. We are, in a sense, vibrating with these very ratios. Octaves, perfect fifths. Think about the next time you sing, say, happy birthday with a group of men and women. No matter how musically untrained the group is, the men will sing one octave lower than the women. And this isn't something that you have to tell them to do or teach them. This is our ears tuning in to the already occurring natural frequencies and ratios that exist in our world between sound. And perhaps you've even heard that one person. You might say, oh, that's so crazy, tone-deaf Aunt Linda or whatever. You hear a person singing along at an interval that doesn't seem right. It's possible they may be singing the fifth between the two octaves. This sound might be familiar to you. That's me singing the same melody in a three to two ratio. Okay, let's increase the numbers again. 
one to one is obviously the same note. Two to one is the octave and three to two, the fifth. Okay, so let's go up from three to two, four to two. Well, that's simply two to one doubled. So that's going to be our first octave pair twice as high as the first. 400 hertz to 300 hertz. That's the highest octave so far with the fifth. Conveniently, because again, we started at 100 hertz. What we have so far have been pitches at 100, 200, 300, 400. And so perhaps you're thinking, Yes, because this music, famously used by Kubrick to represent something of the discovery of the world, is the discovery of the world in sound. And this music by Johann Strauss is titled Sunrise, actually there, where we hear like light from the sun leaking into the night sky, all the pitches springing forth from silence into the world. And so indeed, our next interval is that note there. And this is where we find beauty, my friends. The five to four. That, that sound there, we call that a major third. Those are two notes at a five to four ratio with one another. And it doesn't matter what we call it though, because you know that sound. Maybe you've experienced it as a dial tone, or maybe you've heard, uh, I don't know, a car horn honking. Those aren't random notes. Those are two notes at a five to four ratio with one another. And how about the six to five? Well, if you've been following, six is double three. So if we listen to our five to three interval, and we simply double the frequency of the lower note, and we call this ratio a minor third. And again, that's another known sound in our world. Anything, anything you've heard that has a sad melody. So pitches are getting higher, so just check your volume, please. Though again, I think it's under control. Seven to six, that's a nice sound because a new pitch has yet again emerged. Though it sounds somewhat pleasing to our ears, this is actually a flat minor third. We would call this, um, it actually has a name, it's called the septimal minor third. It's a, it's just a bit flatter than our six to five ratio, our seven to six ratio. Okay, continuing to go up though to eight. Now eight being a multiple of two is the same pitch as our fundamental, just several octaves above. So here's our fundamental. And now here we are several octaves above the same note. If I were to play the eight to seven ratio, we would get something that sort of sounds like our whole tone, our step in music. But actually when I played this together for the first time, it sounds exactly like the sort of emergency broadcast thing that you hear on a television. And that's probably exactly what it is because you know, how did they choose to make, uh, I don't know, they decided to make this tone out of pure ratio. So here we hear the eight to seven ratio, but don't be alarmed, nothing is wrong. You're just listening to the WTF Bach podcast. And if we keep going nine to eight now, well, nine, if we divide by three is six. And so therefore, if we divide six by three, it becomes two. So our 900 Hertz pitch is going to be the note that is the three to two ratio above 600 Hertz. In other words, a perfect fifth above 600 Hertz. One more, 1000 Hertz, that's double our five, which if you remember was our major third, the Strauss, the Kubrick moment when that pitch emerged, our major third. So now we've got it an octave higher and we've got this smattering of pitches here. 
which when you think about it, sounds like everything that we've ever known. And it's not like a particular culture invented these ratios, invented these sounds any more than any culture invented one, two, three, four, five. So that's just me randomly giving those notes free reign and it created something that sounded like music. But that last chord there that I held, that's very interesting because that is the major triad, which as we discussed, the major third has a five to four ratio and the perfect fifth, a three to two ratio. So in other words, we could express that entire triad as 600 hertz, 500 hertz, and 400 hertz. That would be perhaps the most simple way of generating a major triad program three pitches at 400 hertz, 500 hertz, and 600 hertz. Now you ask, of course, about the minor triad. That's just a little bit more complicated. The minor third has a ratio of six to five, like we said. So that gives us the bottom two notes of our minor triad, 600 hertz, the minor third in the middle, 500 hertz, the bottom, then we need to simply calculate what is a perfect fifth above 500 hertz, and that is done by figuring out what is the three to two ratio above 500. Now it happens to be 750, and the problem with that is that it is not a, a, a hundred, like we've got all the other numbers in this episode so far have been 100, 200, 300, blah, blah, blah. So we need to multiply everything by two, just by two, to have the perfectly even ratio of 10 to 12 to 15. That is exactly 500 hertz, 600 hertz, and 750 hertz gives us this very basic ratio of the minor triad. So you could see that even the minor triad can be expressed as a ratio. I think we should just listen to these two triads because maybe for many of you, you've never actually heard a purely tuned triad electronically. Very, very beautiful, actually. So here's a couple minor triads and then some, some major triads. Let's enjoy. So what we've done here so far in this episode is we've simply generated the tone actually on a website called onlinetonegenerator.com. I'll put the link in the description so you too can try this. We generated the tone of 100 hertz and with some simple math, some really simple math actually, just listening to 100 versus 200 versus 300 hertz, etc. And then by stacking up a few of these frequencies, we generated something that resembles a scale and then even the major and minor triads. And it's for that reason, I believe, that music is called the universal language. Because this, we found this, we assembled these tones just like the early humans may have with their internet and their computers, etc. I mean, you, you know, they would have come up with something like this. And if we call the music of Bach or Mozart the universal language, I think that's a bit of a stretch because at that point, culture has intervened. But still, Bach and Mozart have only taken this basic stuff, these tones. Actually, every musician has taken these basic tones, which actually are the universal language. This is the universal language. And they've assembled them in a way that fit a time and a purpose unique to them and their culture. But I think that's what's meant by music being the universal language. And therefore, now I am going to try and take these tones, these basic frequencies, and connect it to Bach. Because if we were to generate the next tone, higher than uh, 1,000 hertz, which would be 1,100 hertz, we'd have yet another relationship that we'd be a bit unfamiliar with. The 11 to 10 ratio creates something called 
a greater undecimal neutral second. Yes, so if you uh, want to stump your music teacher and ask them, what, what, uh, what interval has an 11 to 10 ratio? If they respond saying, well, that's a greater undecimal neutral second, they are overqualified. So we do not recognize in any case the 11 to 10 ratio as being familiar to us. Okay, fine, I'll play it for you. This is a greater undecimal neutral second because where else could you hear it? There it is. And the point is that in the development of music, instead of continuing down this unending spiral of generating pitches based on rational numbers, by the way, I never knew that rational numbers simply means anything that can be expressed as a ratio. Ratio null numbers. That's an aside, excuse me. Anyways, we decided to bend this infinite spiral into a circle to make the ends meet again. But it is worth noting that, as one might expect when looking into nature, it is infinite. It's the universe. The spiral of pitches goes on forever. It's nature. It's beautiful, unexpected, and infinite. It's only our minds that demand the simplicity of the circle. So now we are going to take these pitches and try and make the ends meet of a circle by putting them together. There are a few ways of doing it, but we will start with the way the Greeks did it, or at least how we think they did it. You start with those basic ratios again, and in fact the most basic ratio that would generate a new pitch. 1 to 1 generates the same note, 2 to 1 generates the octave, which is the same pitch, but 3 to 2 generates the fifth, which is a new pitch. And from our new pitch, we will generate a series of fifths from it. In other words, we will measure the 3 to 2 relationship against it and go around and around and around until we get somewhere close to 300 hertz again, and then see how far away our initial dot of 300 hertz was from, from, from this circle. Now I'm gonna run all these numbers by you. You don't need to pay attention to the numbers. It's just to keep track of where we are going. Mainly just try and listen to the new pure fifths being generated. So our first fifth was that of 300 hertz. So make a three to two relationship with 300 hertz as our lower number. That's 450 to 300. Okay, now we've got a pair of fifths, listen. Now, 3 to 2 relationship with 450 is the lower number. That's 675. That's our next note. Now, if I keep going up in this manner, the pitches are going to get very high. So when that starts to happen, I'm going to drop the pitch down one octave. Same pitch, but just easier on your ears. So we are at 337.5. A perfect fifth above this is 506.25. Okay. Generating fifths, and I'm just going to lower that an octave just so we don't get too high again. That is here. That's 253.125. Don't pay attention to the numbers. Just listen. And good. Now, the fifth of that is 379.688. I'm chopping off decimal places here. Forgive me, knowing fully well that such a change in frequency is imperceptible. A fifth above that is 569.531. We're going to lower that an octave. 284.765. A fifth above that is 427.148. A fifth above that is 640.722. That's getting sort of high, so let's drop it the octave, 320.361. So what we're doing here, again, just generating pure fifths, mathematically pure ratios of 3 to 2 based on the last note. And we're trying to get back to where we started at 300 hertz. So the fifth above that is 480.541. The fifth above that is 720.8. That's getting pretty high, so we'll lower that an octave, chop it in half, 360.406. Fifth above that is 540.609. And a fifth above that is 810.913. And that's getting pretty high, so we're gonna lower that one octave, 405.456. Pure fifth above this, which is 608.184. Ah. 
And those of you who are waiting for it, 608 if I drop that down the octave, that is, divide it in half, we arrive at 304.092 hertz. And that, the difference between 300 hertz and 304.092 hertz, that is what we call our Pythagorean comma. It's the difference between this and this. You can see they're very close, but they're not quite the same note. That's pretty cool. Most of us know about this Pythagorean comma, but few of us have actually heard what this problem was all about. Aha, that is the problem which Europe inherited and Bach had on his shoulders in order to solve. And it gets wonderful here because if you counted the amount of calculations that I did, if you counted the amount of pure fifths that I generated from our initial one, it was 12 times. From our initial fifth, we did 12 calculations to get back here to 304. And that, because 304 and 300 are so close after 12 calculations, that's why our modern world has 12 pitches. We've got 88 keys on our pianos, we've got six strings on our guitars, but we only have 12 pitches. And don't argue with, you know, saying F sharp and G flat are different pitches. This is, this is afterward. This is what happens when you start trying to make aesthetic decisions around it. But that, that's the real reason why there are 12 pitches in our music. You might ask, well, what happens if you go around the circle some more? Well, now you are thinking like Jing Fang a Chinese mathematician who, after Euclid, because apparently Euclid was the first to express the Pythagorean comma mathematically, this uh, Chinese mathematician in 50 BC discovered that if you do continue the spiral 53 times instead of 12, the 53rd pitch and the starting pitch are much closer than our Pythagorean comma, but still not the same pitch because it's an infinite spiral. And if we are to follow Jing Fang's advice, our scales would have 53 pitches, not to mention how many notes, I mean, imagine how thin the keys would have to be on our keyboards to accommodate 53 divisions of the octaves. So I'm very grateful that we only have 12. But back to this problem of trying to circle a spiral, as it were. If we tune all of our fifths pure, just as we did, and leave the comma, going between those two points on the circle would, would, be, would sound terrible. It would be impossible. So that's fine if you want to write non-chromatic music, which only stays on sort of one end of the circle, and naturally that was the solution for hundreds of years. Until... And here, again, I'm sweeping hundreds, if not thousands, of years of musical history into a few minutes. I, I want you to picture these 12 dots in a circle, like hours on a clock. And noon and midnight are not quite touching, right? They're not aligned. So people started tinkering with these. They, they had to make the last two dots meet so that they could go around the circle. But then that means destroying the mathematically pure relationships between all the other numbers on the clock. So they wanted to do this in an aesthetically pleasing way. And this is what we call temperament. And there are countless solutions to this. If you can, again, imagine the dots, the solutions include various ways of stretching or shrinking the fifths. We call them wide and narrow fifths. And toward the Baroque, toward Bach, solutions were very elegant indeed and included different sets of pure fifths which kept the mathematically pure fifths, the three to two ratio, and groups of narrow fifths and groups of wide fifths. There were even solutions when they would go around the circle sort of overlapping a few times to get our enharmonics and would have certain keys that that had like a double button, like an F sharp and a G flat, like I mentioned. Such an elegant solution as that. 
One other important thing to keep in mind is that the thirds, the pure third, as we were listening to in our ratio of the major triad, since indeed that's a dominating feature of Western music, the fifths became less important than the thirds, and it was the thirds that people decided to keep with their pure ratio of five to four, and something called mean tone temperament is largely based on keeping mathematically pure thirds. So indeed, to accommodate all of these things, to be able to go around the circle have some pure fifths, have some pure thirds, have some narrow fifths, some wide fifths, some maybe intense sounding thirds, maybe a third that uh, is odd in music and when played in music would evoke odd emotions or strange or bizarre feelings. Well, that would take not only a brilliant technician, but a brilliant composer in order to write music that would resonate well within this new, very funky looking circle. And that was Bach. Bach was positioned perfectly at the center of history and this tuning problem, and that's the well-tempered clavier. So we're going to blast past Bach, blast past Bach, and go to the modern day, because you're all asking, well, what do we do today? How do, how do we solve this funky-looking clock today? In my opinion, it's a bit of a sad story. In Europe, around 1605, and again in China, apparently 25 years before, the theory of equal temperament was born. Though it didn't become standard in the Western world until the late 18th century, the early 19th century, the idea there was to divide the octave totally equally, make every single leap around the circle completely equal, and align the dots. One way of thinking about that is to simply take the Pythagorean comma, which is the root of the whole problem, and shave one-twelfth of this whole comma off of each. And then when you listen to the difference between the mathematically pure fifth and the fifth with one-twelfth of the comma shaved off of it, you actually can't hear the difference too much. In fact, it's almost ingenious. It looks like you've solved the problem of tuning. Listen to the pure fifth. Now listen to the fifth with the one-twelfth of a comma. Very, very close. But the implications of what happens within the numbers on the circle, within the clock, is that the thirds, which are the life and the blood of music, the thirds are destroyed because no pure thirds remain. Now here I'm going to play you a mathematically pure third. And now a third, which results from equal temperament. Now that to me, ugh, that's almost criminal. Why, why should we care, though? Well, there's actually a book titled How Equal Temperament Ruined Music and Why You Should Care. It's a decent introduction to the subject. I wouldn't necessarily recommend the book, but why should we care indeed? Well, as we saw, music came out of the earth, out of the air, with these beautiful ratios, these simple relationships, one number spurring on a new note. It's beautiful. And then, in our trying to simplify the system, we destroyed that pure interval for theory so that every piece of music now that we hear, especially music made on computers, electronic music, pop music, most everything that you hear in an elevator, in a mall, anything that isn't a revival of historic music on historic temperaments has lost that beautiful relationship between notes. In a five to four relationship, one of those notes is beating four and another is beating five and that polyrhythmic relationship between notes. My God, that's so beautiful. Another way of saying it is that simply we replace this, which is a pure triad, with this. 
Actually, if you listen to that again, we can hear in the pure triad, which is the, the relationship, six to five to four, nothing is beating in there, as we would say. We don't hear this. But when you play the equal tempered, you hear the ratio, which is not even just sort of beating and exploding out of itself. And keep in mind that Bach's famous testament is called the well-tempered clavier, not the equal-tempered clavier. It's really worth, if you haven't done this, looking into what music sounds like in unequal temperaments. Yet I find that despite the initial hideous-sounding nature of equal temperament after listening to unequal temperaments, your ears do quickly adjust. And keep in mind that, indeed, since many instruments have open strings that you tune with your fingers, violins, for example, note after note, listening to an orchestra or a group of chamber players with multiple players doing that, just tuning with their fingers, or indeed, even a choir with many singers trying to tune note by note, the idea of temperament isn't really possible there. What you have is sort of a tuning, one tuning floating into another, one temperament floating into another, going back and forth between different temperaments, like watching a boat trying to maintain level on a rolling ocean. Really the best place to check out temperaments is keyboard music, especially harpsichord music where the ping of the pitch is so clear and discernible. Because pianos, I would say listen to unequal temperaments on the piano, but pianos are almost always tuned in equal temperament, but I hope to surprise you next year with some interesting projects I've got up my sleeve. But yes, the idea of temperament is best heard on a harpsichord recording, or indeed right here on this podcast, in electronic recordings where I myself have now manually input a few different tunings to listen to some chorales and some fugues. So for the rest of this podcast, I'm just going to play, just to throw you into the ocean of temperament, I'm going to play a few corrals in wild tuning so that your ears start to get used to this world that is temperament. that's got your ears on fire, or at least tingling. Again, this is just random. I'm just randomly picking corrals and tuning schemes. That is a tuning scheme known as Kellner, and this was a corral in D major. And whether or not Kellner works well with D major, look, it's just you in this ocean, and you're floating there, and I'm not even going to save you. Here's another one in a different tuning scheme. Hallelujah. That tuning scheme is known as 
Valotti from 1754, but here again is the same chorale, but now in a different key. The idea being that since not all relationships between intervals will be the same, not all keys will sound the same. Lastly, I'm going to play the same chorale in two different tunings. This is a tuning known as Kellner's Bach, or at least this is what we think Kellner thought was Bach's solution to the well-tempered clavier, and it is a chorale that ends in C minor. I'll break it up phrase by phrase so that the first phrase we'll first hear in Kellner's Bach, and then an equal temperament, and then in Kellner's Bach, and then an equal temperament, etc., etc. Say what you will, and though I really am picking randomly Baroque temperaments and dragging in Bach chorales at random, obviously there are some temperaments that work much better in other keys than others. Say what you will. I think the equal temperament sounds a bit more lifeless. Do you agree? Do you prefer the equal temperament, or do you think it's a crime and a sad form of spiritual and intellectual sloth? Well, let's keep the discussion going. In any case, write me, bach at wtfbach.com. And thank you, all those who write me, for donating as well to this podcast. And happy holidays, or if you're catching up to this episode in mid-June, happy solstice. Listen to the Christmas Oratorio around Christmas or the solstice. It doesn't matter. Here is a fugue from the Art of Fugue in Young's Temperament. Young's Temperament number one. We drag the elephant out of the corner.
mind of the greatest composer. Your one-stop shop for all Bach chops. Nothing short of hip hop. What else but WTF? You'd be a fool. You'd be a fool. You'd be a fool. How do you Without, without your feedback, feedback donations, donations without, without your support, support, the rest is silent. I swear, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta share the shit.